The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Would let's take our Bibles and we'll open them to Exodus chapter 27. This afternoon we continue our tour of the tabernacle and the purpose of God's gift to his people, a purpose that they didn't fully understand, which was to show in types and figures the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The tabernacle was God's dwelling place with his people, and little did they know when God gave it to them that it was a visualization of God who would become incarnate, that he would tabernacle or dwell with his people in the person of Jesus Christ. And in that respect, the tabernacle was a gift, but it was a far lesser gift in the symbol, that is, what was given to Israel, than it was in the reality of it when the Son of God came to this world about 1,500 years after that time. God gave the tabernacle for the awareness of his presence with his people, The tent and the enclosure were right there in the middle of the camp and every waking moment was a reminder that God was with them. Now once again, this study of the tabernacle affords us a a good background for the observance of the Lord's Supper. The brazen altar that we'll speak of tonight is a picture of the cross and at the conclusion of the sermon we will observe the supper which is also a type, it is a New Testament type of Christ and his death on the cross. Now, in our last lesson, we we viewed the tabernacle from the outside. And there in the picture uh, before you, you can see the white linen fence that encloses the tabernacle and forms a courtyard. And that fence kept anyone from entering the court. And that symbolized the righteousness of Christ, which is the only way that we can be made worthy to come into the presence of God. Now, the tabernacle also had only one gate, and that was emblematic that there is only one way that we can approach God. And the gate reflects the statement that was made by Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep. So there was only one gate into the tabernacle, and there is only one approach to God. That is through Jesus Christ. Now this afternoon, we're going to step through that gate and we're going to access the courtyard and uh, go inside of the enclosure. So if you look at Exodus chapter 27, we're going to look in at what you would see as you went in. Verse uh, 1, chapter 27. And thou shalt make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square and the height thereof shall be three cubits. And thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners thereof. His horns shall be of the same, and thou shalt overlay it with brass. And thou shalt make his pans to receive his ashes, and his shovels, and his basins, and his flesh hooks, and his fire pans. All the vessels thereof thou shalt make of brass. And thou shalt make for it a grate of network of brass. And upon the net shalt thou make four brazen rings in the four corners thereof. And thou shalt put it under the compass of the altar beneath, that the net may be even to the midst of the altar. 
And thou shalt make staves for the altar, staves of shittim wood, and overlay them with brass. And the staves shall be put into the rings, and the staves shall be upon the two sides of the altar to bear it. Hollow with boards shalt thou make it, as it would show thee in the mount, so shalt thou make it. At the beginning of the creation, when God made Adam and Eve, there were no barriers between them and God. Adam had continuous, unbroken fellowship with God. He was in perfect harmony with God because there was no sin that separated him. Uh, He was innocent, and so uh, he had no fear to come into the presence of God because of God's holiness. But then when Adam disobeyed and ate of the tree, that fellowship was broken, and the door into the presence of God was slammed shut. So man was banned from God's presence. He was separated from God without a way to repair that breach in the relationship. And so from the account of sin's entrance into the world in Genesis chapter 3, the rest of the scriptures are the unfolding of God's plan to repair that relationship. And the Bible teaches that man is incapable of making that first step towards God. We are depraved in all of our faculties... That's because of the fall. And so if we are to approach God, we can approach him only because we have been summoned and because we've been made acceptable to commune with him. Now, most of you have have been a part of this ministry for years, and I think that you do understand that it's only by a sovereign act of God, a monergistic act of God, that the depravity of each and every one of us is transcended and is overcome by the gracious, effectual calling and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Before Adam sinned, God knew exactly what he would do. God wasn't surprised when Adam yielded to the temptation of the devil because the scriptures very clearly show us that Christ was ordained before the creation of the world to become an offering for sin. And of course, that would presuppose that Adam would fall and redemption would be needed And there would be a method of restoration that would be in place. And not only was that needed, but for reasons known only to God, the fall was God's way, the way that he would show his glory, that he would show his holiness and his love for his creation. The plan of God was a deliberate plan. There were no mistakes in the creation. There was no guesswork with God. And so there weren't any contingency plans lest God's first choice plan should fail. So God's plan was that he would allow man back into his good graces, and God's plan was for fellowship and for relationship that Adam had in the original creation. God wanted to, wants to restore that. And thus we see parallels in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and the last book of the Bible, Revelation, that they show us that whatever that Adam lost in the first paradise will be more than regained in the glorious, better paradise of heaven. And interestingly, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 that the creation was made subject to the curse in the fall, that is, the animate and the inanimate came under the curse, and they also likewise await the final redemption when the earth will be restored to its original relationships. Now we read in Isaiah that Christ's kingdom, in his kingdom, that the lion will lay down with the lamb, the lion will eat straw like the ox. The psalm says that the earth will rejoice and sing praise. 
And so there is that, that uh, those anthropomorphic expressions, uh, you understand the word, that are used in scriptures that talk about how creation, all of creation, will be restored in the time that the kingdom comes. Now, God's plan for all of this has taken centuries to fulfill, but nevertheless, God worked faithfully to to bring about the exact plan in the exact way that would satisfy his justice and holiness. And one of the first stages of this plan was to introduce his people to the tabernacle that would show all of his plans in a figure. Now, when God made Israel his chosen nation and he gave them their system of worship, then the tabernacle and the temple became symbols of redemption. And that culminated in the Messiah who had finalized restoration. Now, this tells us then that when we look into the, into the tabernacle and we see the types and the figures, that we can't go outside of those. And we can't say, well, God did it some other way. We can imagine that God would do it some other way. No, it has to be according to the type that God gave. And I'm going to show you tonight that the type that God gave very clearly proves that Christ died for his own people. Now, repeatedly, we've seen in the instructions for the tabernacle that God said, do this. See that you do this in the way that I showed you in the mount. So the instructions are very specific. Everything must be done God's way for God's plan to work. Now, I've said numerous times that everything in the method of building and the structure itself spoke of the work of Christ. Now, this afternoon, then, we're, we're just passing... Uh, through the gate of the courtyard, and one step in, there are astounding symbols of Christ. The linen fence representing the righteousness of Christ and the singular gate that restricted access to God are just the beginning of wonders that are discovered in God's plan. And so we pass through the gate, through the opening of the fence, and the first thing before you is an altar of bronze. Now, the picture that we have next shows the artist's conception of it. This was called the brazen altar or the altar of burnt offering. The dimensions of it are given in, in the scriptures there in, uh, in verse number 1. It's a, a square box, square type box of seven and a half feet wide, seven and a half feet long, four and a half feet high. And the box was made of acacia wood overlaid with bronze. Now, if you'll, if you'll permit me, I, I would like to stick with the King James wording that we have here and say that this was an altar that was overlaid with brass. I know there are some who quibble with that. Is it bronze versus brass? But both of those have a very similar, similar chemical composition. Both contain copper. The wood of the altar was strong and it was durable and overlaid with brass so that it could withstand the intense heat of the flames that consumed the sacrifice. Obviously, a simple wooden box by itself wouldn't work. That would catch fire and burn. And so it needed this metal covering. And I'll come back to next time why this is important, what that stands for, the wood and the brass and the ability to withstand the fire. All of that is very important. But in case I I should forget to make this particular point later, the height of the altar, according to the scriptures, was only four and a half feet. And... um, That allowed for the sacrificial animal to be put on the altar without going up steps. Now, I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Exodus 20. This is where God gave the Ten Commandments. And before the instructions to make the brazen altar and all these other things that God said to make, there were temporary altars that were constructed for sacrifices. 
And we notice the instructions for these in Exodus 20, verses 24 through 26. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Now, before Israel was given the law, they were given special permission to make sacrifices, and they were permitted to make earthen altars. But if they were in a place where, a rocky part of the desert, wherever they might be, where there wasn't enough dirt that they could pile up to make an altar, they were allowed to take stones, uh, stones, rocks, to make uh, an altar, Uh, But that altar was not to be of the type that heathens made. Now, to pagans, the altar itself was something to be worshipped, and so they would cut the stones to make their altars very carefully. They would cut them out precisely, and they would polish those stones, and sometimes they would even paint them. And so when they had their altars, they were very ornate, beautiful places to worship. And sometimes they would plant trees near them, And thus you read of groves in the scriptures. You read of the high places where sacrifices were made. And often you'll see in the revivals of Israel that God would raise up a good king and they would purge the false worship of Israel. And one of the things that he would do is break down those altars and cut down the groves. And that was done because the polished stones and the planted trees were the ways that heathens worshipped. And Israel's God was not to be compared with false deities. I don't think that anyone has heard of a polished, beautiful cross, and that's what the cross stood for, or the altar stood for, rather. Polished stones would ruin that type of the cross of Christ. And the beautiful cross that some of you might wear around your neck, that would be totally inappropriate in this setting. But returning to the to the height of the altar, we see in verse 26 that it says that they were not to make steps up to the altar. One of the things that pagans did, they had high altars. They ascended steps to go up to the place of sacrifice. Uh, In the northern part of Israel, in Dan, you go to the ruins of Dan, and there is an outline of a high altar there that was made by Jeroboam II, uh, which they would go up and worship their golden calf that was their god. And then God had another practical reason for keeping the altar low. He said, you shall not go up steps that your nakedness be not, won't be seen. God didn't want a gust of wind to blow up a robe. And he didn't want people that are standing way down below to be able to look up and see under the priest garments. So he said, this is to protect your, your, uh, your dignity. This is to protect your modesty. So you can't go up steps to make your sacrifice. Well, that's just a little bit of information for you about the height of the altar to show you why this altar is so low to the ground, only four and a half feet. Well, now let's discuss this this brazen altar, and let's see what we can learn about Christ. And what we learn, I think, is truly thrilling. Uh, I think that you would want to know the reason that God put these things in the Scriptures, that we'd want to have an understanding of why it's here. Uh, These aren't just cold details that God decided to put in. These things have a purpose. There's a meaning in them. And it's all about the faith that we have in Christ. Now, first then, we would note the placement of the altar. 
the word altar signifies to lift up. That's what it means. The altar is a place of lifting. And to get the animal on the altar, it had to be lifted. It had to be raised. And that altar had to be high enough so that the priest didn't lay it on the ground. It has to be lifted in order to be seen. And when we, when we think about this, I, I don't think most of you would uh, think, have to think very hard before it comes to mind that Jesus said, I must be lifted I must be lifted up. This is what he said in John 3. He said, as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted. And the question is, why must he be lifted? And the answer to it is, he must be seen. He must be lifted to be seen. And in that Old Testament story of Moses, uh, he was told to, to put the serpent of brass on a pole, and whoever looks up to that serpent would be healed from the bite of the fiery serpents. And that healing was not just from the pain of physical death of a serpent's bite, but more importantly, it was emblematic of faith. It's emblematic of trusting God. To look is to trust God, that you trust Him, that He'll do what He said that He would do. And so it was one of the ways that God showed Israel that salvation is by faith, that salvation is a gracious act of God, and not by any works that we can do. Well, this story of Moses and the serpent on the pole in John 3 was Jesus telling Nicodemus that he must be lifted up on a pole or he must be lifted up on the cross. And he said, I must be lifted. Well, the purpose is he must be lifted so that people could look to him and those who look to him and believe will be saved. So in John 3, verses 14 and 15, he said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And so this altar, the lifting up, points to the cross. Jesus said in John 12, And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Now this is a very good place for us to wander in and explore some important doctrines. But unfortunately, we don't have time to do that in this setting. Uh, that is to explore these things deeply. But I would like to say about John 12:32 that it's confusing to many people because Jesus was not teaching here universal salvation. And neither did he teach that his death was an atonement for those who didn't believe. He said that he would draw all men to him. And we've got to investigate that statement because it's evident to everyone in this room that not all men are drawn to Christ. In fact, when Jesus said this, there were people that were scattered all over the world on continents where they had never heard of Christ. He said that he would draw all men, and there were multitudes of thousands in parts of the world that were completely unknown. They never heard of and they never would hear of Christ. So what did Jesus mean when he said all men? Is he saying something that isn't true? Well, no, when he says all men... It's much like the use of the word world in the scriptures. World has many meanings, like the world of believers, the world of unbelievers. There's the world in general that lies in wickedness. And in the context of John 3, world refers to all kinds of people, or in other words, Gentiles as well as Jews. And so similarly, here in in John 12, all men can't mean all people everywhere on planet Earth. It must mean all sorts of men, regardless of their race, their nationality, their economy. And it parallels exactly what John, uh, John heard in the Revelation, 
in Revelation 9 that people are redeemed to God out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. And so if Jesus is lifted, any person who looks to him won't be refused. The Bible is teaching if you come by faith in the blood of the sacrifice, you will be saved. And that's very important for these people to know because not long afterwards, Jesus would die and then shortly the church would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the light of salvation to all people throughout the world. So it's extremely important that we get that conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus right. What did Jesus mean when he said that he would save the world? Well, he meant that salvation is not restricted to Jews, as Nicodemus and the other Jews believed, but Gentiles also would be saved. So the altar, that's a place of sacrifice. And as you entered through the gate of the tabernacle, the first thing that you would see is that altar. No one who came into the tabernacle area could proceed any further without a sacrifice. So we notice first about its placement that there was no entrance without a sacrifice. The altar spoke of the cross of Christ, and the cross is what bars the sinner from coming to God. Now, you don't often hear it said that way, do you? Usually when we speak of the cross, we always point out that the cross is the way that people come to God. Isn't that what we say? I mean, don't we sing the song, the way of the cross leads home? But we also need to understand that the cross stands in the way of the sinner. It's the prohibition of coming to God. When the Israelite stepped into the courtyard, the brazen altar was right there before him, and he could proceed no further until he stopped at the altar, and he deposited his animal with the priest. Now, from our previous studies of priesthood, you know very well that only the priest could go into the tabernacle. And so this man uh, who, who brought his offering or would come into that area couldn't expect that the priest would represent him in the tabernacle unless he brought his animal. And unless that man believed that this sacrifice was made as a way to appease God and the blood was appropriated for that, he couldn't go any further. So he understood that his offering was a substitute, that either he must die or the animal must die. And graciously, God accepted the animal as a temporary solution until the time that Christ would make atonement for sin, that is, to die in the sinner's place, to satisfy God for his sin. And the very same is true of the sinner today, that until the sinner stops at the cross and realizes that Jesus dying on the cross, that that is his substitute, that he needs someone to bear his sins for him, he can't enter into relationship with God and be accepted in his presence. And so the cross, or in this case, the altar, is a barrier. It's a stopping place. You've got to do what you've got to do there, or you can't approach. So the altar, then, is both a barrier to God and it's a way to God that if Israel, the Israelite brought that sacrifice to the priest and it was offered on the altar, then he could freely approach. But if he refused to do that, the, the altar was the stopping place. He was offended at that point and he has no part with God. And today, the cross is a barrier to many people. Many come to the cross where Jesus died and they stop short of believing that the work that he did there was for their behalf or on their behalf and so they reject the cross and thus they're left out and they can't come to God and if we claim as so many people do that there are many paths to God we in fact reject the blood of the cross 
So we see that the altar is not a punishment for the people, but the altar is there because it speaks of God's love for them. It showed that God was willing to save them. And it really does show what Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so it showed God's hatred for sin, which is a barrier, but at the same time his love for men. And this is the place for entrance to be gained through Christ. Now we notice also that there was no identity without a sacrifice. The Israelite who came into the courtyard brought the sacrifice and he knew the animal that he brought was specifically for him. The sacrifice represented him before God. It doesn't represent his neighbor. This is not about his friends. And it's especially not about anyone who is outside the camp. Now that, that teaches that we are to recognize that the death of Christ was a personal sacrifice. That Christ died for the individual. Well, how many times we would wish it be true that we could believe for a friend. That we could believe for a loved one. We wish that we could take care of their unbelief. That despite their stubbornness that our friends and our loved ones could go to heaven because our belief stands good for them. But we can't. Salvation is personal, belief is personal, worship is personal, and each person must be identified by his own sacrifice. I must receive Christ, and no one else can do that for me. And then it also shows that Christ's sacrifice was not indiscriminate. That Christ didn't die as a general sacrifice, but he died as a peculiar sacrifice. This is what we call particular redemption. That there is no atonement made for anyone who's not a part of God's chosen nation of Israel. And so you didn't find the courtyard flooded with Moabites and Amorites and Canaanites. Now it's true there were proselytes to the Jewish religion. But we also understand under God's law, he said the stranger that is among you, he must do exactly the same thing that the Israelite must do. He must come in exactly the same way. And that shows that the sacrifice of Christ was made for none other than those who truly do believe on Christ. And so when the Israelite brought his offering, his sins were atoned. They're not hypothetically covered. Now the sacrifice was a real substitute. And friends, the same is true of every believer in Christ today. The blood of Christ really does atone for that person. There is no such thing as Christ paying for sins that are not remitted. There's no such thing as forgiveness that is not effectual. There's no such thing as redemption that doesn't really redeem. Now, what we have here is a one-on-one -on -one correspondence in the sacrifice and a one-on-one -on -one effect to those that it's made for. So it can't be made hypothetically, that is, it can't be made tentatively or upon the supposition that somewhere, somewhere in the world, somebody would utilize the sacrifice. I mean, who could imagine that the sacrifice of Christ would be that impersonal? And yet that is the thought and that is the theology of most churches today. Most people believe that Christ's death was not real substitution. It, only, it didn't really satisfy, but it only works when we mix something with it, whether that's faith or something else. And so their attitude towards Christ is that his sacrifice was mostly wasted. There's suffering that's put on Christ that avails for nothing, because the greater part of the world dies and goes to hell without ever hearing of Christ. And so to what purpose is Christ's death for them? To what purpose did God put his son through the suffering of hell on the cross for him? 
Uh, for them, rather. And make no mistake about this. That's what the cross is all about. The cross is a place of suffering for sin. It's a place of suffering for the hell that believers would, who, who, who have put their faith in Christ would have suffered if they were to die and go to hell. And so that suffering of Christ had to be infinite to satisfy the infinite penalty that God imposes for the transgression of the law. But the belief in a universal atonement means that Christ shed his blood needlessly for people that don't avail themselves of it. And do you know that would be the same as the priest lining up thousands of sacrifices and killing many animals needlessly just in case there's somebody out there that failed to come to the tabernacle. Now, is God so unsure of what he's doing that he's dependent on fallen man to make the sacrifice of Christ worthy? Does man make the sacrifice effectual or does God? Well, we believe that Christ satisfied the Father. That his blood was shed for those who truly do believe in him for salvation. And they're the only ones for whom the blood accomplishes anything. Isaiah 53.11 says, He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Is Christ satisfied if he doesn't save all he intends to save? Does Christ say, well, I came into the world to save you all, but I couldn't do it. But I'm still satisfied. I see the travail of my soul and I'm satisfied. That doesn't sound like the Christ that I know from Scripture. Unless you say this, oh yes, the blood of Christ accomplishes something for the unbeliever. So therefore Christ died for everybody. Something is done for the unbeliever. It guarantees the common grace of God to the benefit of all. And to that we would respond... The common grace of God is because of believers. Common grace is the overflow of God's special grace to believers because we must live in this world until we're taken up into glory. And the scripture says he's long-suffering to us until we come to faith. And we have to live until then. Common grace is a byproduct of Christ's special redeeming grace. And at the very least, what the lost sinner should see by that is that the Christian is their best help. That without us, there's no reason for God to provide the world for, with anything. He's long-suffering that we who will be saved will come to repentance and he keeps us alive for that purpose. And to do that, he just blesses the whole world and encompasses us in that. I believe that every drop of blood that Jesus shed accomplished the exact purpose. It really does satisfy God for all whom it was intended. So only those who are real believers and come to him for salvation are considered in Christ's atonement. And this is the reason that Jesus said in John 6:37, "All the Father giveth me shall come to me." Now you see the altar in the camp teaches that Jesus atoned for the sins of his people. These are Israelites there, folks. When the announcement of Mary's pregnancy was made, the angel said, and she shall bring forth a son, and he shall save his people from their sins. He shall save his people. Did you know most people are afraid to preach that? He will save his people, but thank God he's let us see that glorious truth. Jesus saves his people. In John 17, 2, Jesus said, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. John 17, 9, I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me. For they are thine. Folks, that's not the preacher's doctrine. That's Christ's doctrine. That's the doctrine of the scripture. 
Now, the Bible is so much clearer about types and figures and the pictures become so much more real when you understand that God had a perfect plan of salvation. That all of this is according to God's pattern. There is, listen, there is no type or figure in all of tabernacle worship that suggests even for a minute that sacrifices would be made for anyone other than God's chosen people. Now, I would like to get to the second point of the outline, but then I wouldn't be able to complete it all without holding you much overtime. Uh, the brazing altar is a type of Christ, and we need to have time to show that to you in the observance of the Lord's Supper. Paul said that until Christ comes, that we are to observe the death of the cross as a symbol of what he did. We see the symbol in the Lord's Supper. So I want to put, you, put yourself, I want you to put yourself in the place of an ancient Israelite and see how that God showed his truths acted out in symbols. Jesus gave this blessed one in the New Testament. It's a church ordinance that we are to keep faithfully because the cross is that symbol of the payment for salvation for everyone that believes. Christ on the throne died for his own. Now, I'd like for you to stand, if you would, please, and we're going to pray. And we'll remain standing for the singing of the communion hymn. And we'll pray silently at first, and that's to confess our sins so that we are prepared to partake. And then I'm going to conclude the prayer, and our deacons and musicians will come, and then we'll sing. And, I, and I'd like you to do this. Just don't sing the words by rote. We mentioned that just a moment ago. Pay attention to what we sing. Think of this very sincerely and think of the altar on which Christ gave himself for our sins. So now let's pray silently and prepare our hearts. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would forgive us of our sins. Lord, speak to our hearts that in true confession we come worthy with all sins confessed, so that we can partake of the supper tonight. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures, for the word that we've heard, how Jesus gave himself for us, that every person in this room can say with full assurance that we were on the mind of Christ when he was on the cross, that he gave his life specifically for us, knowing us from before the foundation of the world. That is scripture. That is Bible, that is apostles, that is Jesus Christ. It's the word of the Old Testament and the word of the New Testament. In types and figures and in the reality, this is your word. And we thank you for the truth of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.